0: Hosea chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning, Hosea chapter 6, so if you're in Psalms, if you'll start turning in the direction of the New Testament, uh, you'll go Hosea, or you'll go uh, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, you'll get into um, the major prophets, the, you know, how Isaiah 66 chapters or whatever, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations in the middle there, Ezekiel and Daniel, lots of pages. And then you'll come to the minor prophets that kind of finish out the rest of the Old Testament just before you get to the news. So if you have to use your table of contents, let me say this. Sometimes I'm like, man, I know that's in there, but I can't find it. No shame in that. Use your table of contents. That's what it's there for. Um, so... Hosea chapter 6 will be almost squarely in the middle of the book of Hosea. Really interesting how I I landed in this text. I was aiming in another direction and in my um, scripture reading plan, uh, I landed in the book of Hosea this past week and it perfectly hit on what I want to uh, look at this morning in our gospel sermon series. So Hosea 6 and we're going to kind of key in on verses 1 through 11. So we are continuing in our gospel sermon series. Um, this is, as I, as I have it right now, six, um, six sermons, six weeks, and six key questions. You should see that behind me there on the screen. And uh, we're, we're looking at questions about the gospel that really need to be fairly weighed and evaluated because I'm afraid sometimes that the gospel, especially for folks, and I see many of you in this room that probably grew up in church. Um, I really started attending church pretty consistently about fourth grade, and so I kind of you know, say I more or less grew up in church, um, but when we grow up in church, um, if we're not careful, we can really think that our, our churchianity is Christianity, Christianity, and we need to separate the two because you can be really good at churchianity and miss heaven uh, by a long ways. Um, but if you're, if you're saved by the blood of Christ, what we just sung about this morning, if you've been put back together, you're at one. That's what atonement essentially means. You are put back at one with the Lord because of the blood of uh, Jesus Christ. Um, then that's what matters. That's what is going to make it into heaven uh, in eternity. And so, as I've said every week, this is the one thing you can't get wrong. This is, if you've heard nothing I've said in almost four years of preaching in this pulpit now... Please, please dial in. Go back and listen to the last two sermons if you've missed those. And listen to the key question and answer that for yourself from the Word of God. But we cannot afford to get this thing wrong. We can get a lot of things wrong in life, but this is not it. On the other side of things, as I talk about this gospel, if you're a believer in Christ, you've trusted in Jesus and you've repented of your sin and, uh, and that's been washed away um, and you're safe in, in Christ... If, if you are that person this morning, please don't turn down the volume and say, oh, he's talking to someone else, you know, across the room. I'm still talking to you. And here's why I'm still talking to you and I'm still preaching to me. It's because we should never, ever, ever get over the gospel. Ever, we should never get over the gospel. The gospel, it, it goes so deep that you and I will never, ever, ever find the bottom As J.D. Greer says, we can search and search our whole lives and never find the bottom. In fact, 1 Peter 1.12 of this gospel says this. Listen, angels in the presence of God, angels long to look into these things. So picture me, five and a half feet, peering over this pulpit to see what I think are mums right here. I hope I'm correct about that. Maybe not. Don't tell me. Tell me later. Peeking over this pulpit to see what's in front of me. I picture angels longing to look over into the goodness of the gospel. So if you're a Christian this morning, here's what should happen. You should sit up straight. And you should say, praise the Lord, I'm in a church where someone up front for the next half hour is going to tell me about the good news that should never get tired in my mind and my heart. Ever. 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 And so let me give you a quick series refresh, just quickly. Genesis 1 through 3 was our first sermon. We talked about creation, how the gospel is for all creation. God created it all, Tov, good. He created all good, and at the end, He called it very good. He created all good, and then we broke it. We broke it with our sin. And how God is putting everything in creation back together. Even the creation groans, Paul tells us. God is putting it all back together so the gospel is not just a gospel for you alone. We have a real tendency to say of the gospel uh, that it's just for me. It is for you, but you're a small part of the story. So let's not elevate man in this gospel. Let's please not be careful. Let's please be careful not to do that. We don't need to elevate man. We need to elevate God. And we need to lift up Christ and realize that were it not for Jesus, there is no gospel. That would be the end of us. And so that we celebrate it is a gospel for all creation being put back together. And then we went to Luke 19, not to skip over the whole Old Testament. We went to Luke 19 and we looked at Zacchaeus and how Zacchaeus was a wicked, far away from God sinful man who was changed not by a command, but he was changed by the love and the personal relationship that he found in Jesus Christ. So Zacchaeus was curious about Jesus, but Jesus was seeking after Zacchaeus. And how he's coming after us. And so we went back to the law. So we creation and then we're in Exodus looking at the giving of the law. And we talked about how the gospel is not religion. The gospel is not religion. You don't get saved by keeping the law. The law is like the guardrails in a sense that are supposed to keep us on the road. Okay, they're, they're sort of boundary markers that identify us. Well, today we're going to move to what will be our last sermon in the Old Testament. In the minor prophet book of Hosea. And here's what we're going to look at. How the gospel is present in the Old Testament. Okay, So Genesis, creation, the fall. Exodus, giving of the law. And then the rest of it is the story of Israel and God's relationship. And basically, Israel keeps running away. And God keeps going after them and, and, and reclaiming them for himself. Saying, you're my people. What are you doing? How could you run away from me? So we're going to look at how the gospel is present in The Old Testament. So the question for today is this. What does the gospel mean when the gospel calls us to repent? What does that word repent mean? Not just in a technical definition kind of way where you say, Okay, Josh, it means uh, the Greek word is metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. And I understand that you're saying my mind's supposed to be changed. That's a big part of it. But we want to talk about what the gospel means uh, when it says repent. And Hosea teaches us about this. Important concept called repentance. So let me give you a quick background and context. You can do more reading uh, about Hosea, but just a quick flyover of the book as a whole. Hosea is one of 12 minor prophets. Now, when I say minor prophets, if you're watching the World Series right now, you may think about the major leagues and the minor leagues. Why are those guys in the minor leagues? Because they aren't quite good enough to play in the majors yet. That's not the case with the prophets, okay? So it's not like, well, he's kind of a double A, he's a single A prophet. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of good things to say. So, you know, we'll send him down to the Delaware Blue Hens or whatever, you know. It's not like that. He's not a JV. He's not on the JV prophecy team. It's because his book is shorter. It's less extensive than the others. So you go read Isaiah when it was a part of my Bible reading plan. It felt like it took two years to get through Isaiah because it's like sixty six chapters and it's a lot of poetry and it's it's just t- it's a tough read to be honest with you. Jeremiah, you know, lengthy book um, and so. Uh, this guy Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos, preaching in the northern kingdom of Israel. So you got Israel, Judah. He's preaching in the northern kingdom from 760 roughly to 720. Okay, there's a few p- people kind of draw it out a little bit differently, like 759 to you know, just call it 760 to 720 roughly BC. Now I don't want to assume anything. You probably all know this, but BC we're talking about before who? Christ, before Christ. So remember this, when we say seven we're talking seven and a half centuries before Jesus. So this is all leading up to him. So when Hosea is, is preaching and prophesying, uh, he is saying things that are true of Israel, and they're going to find their culmination 700 years later in this one person called Jesus Christ. The interesting thing about Israel in Hosea's day is this. The small pagan nations that lived all around them We're leaving them alone. Like, nobody was picking on them on the playground, right? And all the little guys in the room go, yes, right? Nobody's picking on them on the playground. So what they're doing is all the pagan nations around them are warring with each other. And that leaves Israel and Judah by themselves. So what happens to their economy when the resources are not going to wartime efforts? Right? goes up. It increases. Everything is getting better, right? And everybody kind of gets sort of, as they say, fat and sassy, right? We get comfortable and we get happy and uh, we've not been touched by this. Ray Steadman says it like this. He says, people were living it up. We've heard that, right? They were living it up. They didn't have much time for God. Now, he says, they would not have said it that way, but nobody ever says that when it's true. Hmm. Instead, they might have said something like, we just don't have quite enough time to meet all the demands that God puts upon us. We've got so many other busy and important things going on. Doesn't sound too far from 21st century Western Christianity, does it? Think about all the things that we put in front of Christ. Think about all the things that get our heart, our mind, our attention our affections. Think about all the things that even you sit in here while I'm preaching and you're making notes about your recipe, <laughs> you know, or what football game you're going to watch in an hour, okay? Steadman says the spirit was willing, but listen to this the flesh was ready for the weekend. Mm. So in chapters 1 through 3, God instructs his prophet to do something really strange, really curious. No parent in here would say this to their child. He says, go take for yourself a wife, but not from one of the girls in the youth group. He says, go take for yourself a A wife of promiscuity. Okay? Now, for tact's sake, we'll just say that Uh, this woman was going to be a a harlot. Uh, This marriage was going to be filled with infidelity, with shame, and a relentless love as Hosea pursued his wife. Essentially, this he goes after this beautiful woman named Gomer, and he marries her, and she gives him three children. And every time they turn around, she is running off to the arms of someone else. And Hosea is commanded to keep going after her, and keep going after her, and keep going after her. And this is a devastating object lesson for this prophet. Think about this. You're a man of God, and God calls you to do this. And every time you continue to do this, what happens? You are embarrassed. And your life is a living object lesson of how Israel was ruthlessly unfaithful to God. To keep his covenant, you say. Well, what were they doing that was so bad? What do you mean they're running off? What is Israel actually doing? Well, they're worshiping the Canaanite rain god Baal, or as we say in the South, Baal. Right? We have a good way of, of you know turning things around. I'm just going to say Baal because I've said it that way since I was six. So we we uh, he was worshiping. They're worshiping the Canaanite rain god Baal. Now, last week I said I think that uh, Baal was the sun god. You're like, no, wait a minute. I, I was paying attention. Here's the deal. He's the general weather god of that region. So storm, sun, all those things. When the people living in those pagan nations had weather problems, drought, famine, things like that, they would go to the god of Baal or Baal and they would say, bless us, bring us rain, bring us sun, bring us whatever we need weather-wise to keep us alive. And so the Jews, instead of going to God during droughts and famines, who are they going to? They're going to Baal. They're going to Baal for help. Now, this pagan worship that they were engaging in involved male and female prostitution. I'll leave that for you to explain at home. But literally and symbolically, Israel was involved in prostitution. Okay, so these pagan worship practices involved that, and they were engaging in this while they're carrying on their Jewish religious festivals. So it's a certain time of year, we gather the family up and we have this festival. But oh, we're going to run back to Baal and we're going to do all these awful things, terrible things. Oh, but guess what? It's time for another festival. So let's get back together and do that thing, right? We don't like hypocrisy. But the seeds of hypocrisy are in our own heart, are they not? They sure are. So chapters 4 and 5, God pronounces judgment on this northern kingdom. And he says, the Assyrians are going to sweep in and attack you like a roaring lion. And they're going to lay you to waste. It's going to be bad. So at the end of chapter 5, there's this key verse. I'm going to read it in a moment. There's this key verse or key two verses in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. That help us understand the response that we're going to look at in chapter 6 for a few minutes this morning. Chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. You shouldn't have to turn a page. Let's look at that together. (coughs) God says, For I am like a lion to Ephraim. That's another name for Israel, northern kingdom. For I am like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off. And no one can rescue them. I will depart, and listen to this, return to my place. So I picture a lion who goes out for the kill, gets what he wants, comes back to his lair, and resides there and watches. I will depart, God says, and return to my place, until they recognize their guilt and they seek my face. They will search for me in their distress." So, when Israel hears that God is going to judge them and then pull back to watch how they respond, when they hear this, they know we have messed up royally. And so, what we see in chapter 6 is this superficial and surface level effort at repentance. Now, when you read it, when you read it, because same thing for me, you're going to be like, my goodness, that's the most heartfelt, contrite, repentant, broken, prayer i've ever heard in my life that anybody utters and then you're going to see right after that god doesn't buy it and we're going to talk about why so let's look at hosea chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 listen to the word of god this is what i think some people have a different opinion but i think it's the people calling each other to repent come let us return to the lord for he has torn us And He will heal us. He has wounded us and He will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days and on the third day, He will raise us up so we can live in His presence. I'm not even going to touch on this, but you can hear gospel overtones. Two days, three days, raise us up, live in His presence. I'm not even going to touch on that. Let us strive to know the Lord, they say to one another. His appearance is as sure as the dawn, meaning He will come just like the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Verse 4. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? This is God speaking. What am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I have used the prophets to cut them down. I have killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. He says, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus incidentally quotes this at the New Testament Pharisees. But they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. What covenant? His law. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with bloody footprints, like raiders who wait in ambush for someone A band of priests murders on the road to Shechem. They commit atrocities. I've seen something horrible in the house of Israel. Ephraim's promiscuity is there. Israel is defiled. A harvest is also appointed for you, Judah. Now to make sure we put this in a solid biblical timeline, I'm moving from this direction over here, your left, Genesis all the way to the consummation of all things. To put this in a solid biblical timeline, remember when God gave the law to his people in the book of what? Exodus. Okay, In the book of Exodus, God gave his law not to be a savior, not to become a religion unto themselves so that they keep these rules and they're saved. He gave them this law, two books into the Old Testament, essentially to give them these moral and religious Boundary markers. They're guardrails. They're to identify them as his people. And they've been saved out of Israel. Now in keeping this law, they show the nations around them what it looks like to belong to God. It's supposed to be a good thing. okay? And he told them in, uh, in the scripture that obedience to this law is going to bring blessings. I tell this to my kids all the time. But disobedience to his law is going to bring what? Where are my kids? (laughs) Curses. Okay, all right. So Deuteronomy 28 talks about that. So the basis for God's anger and judgment here is simple. He told them, if you keep my word, you're going to have blessings. If you disobey my word and you violate my covenant, you're going to have curses. Now, in Exodus 19, 8, you need to know this. They told the Lord, we will do everything that you've told us to do, right? This sounds like our kids, or mine maybe okay maybe not yours maybe mine okay and you say if you're really good when we go to the so-and-so then we'll go through the drive-thru and we'll get the you know the little kids meal and we'll give you you know you know what I mean like we don't like to do a whole lot of that but from time to time you just reach way back you know and you're like okay I'm digging deep here (laughs) and what do the kids always say oh we'll be good we'll do everything you tell us to do Right? And then, how many warnings? Do you really want that plastic piece of junk in that kid's meal? <laughs> then sit up. Pay attention. I never do that. <laughs> Bless me, Lord, please. And so, let's be fair. On the surface of this this thing, when you read verses 1 through 3, you're like, man, that's an awesome prayer. This is all our fault, God. We're going to come back to you. We want to be restored. We don't want to be torn to pieces. Fix everything. Heal us. Bandage our wounds. Let's go back home. Except for the fact that God sees through the whole thing. Right? Because God knows our hearts. Jesus did not entrust himself to man. Why? Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. So before we look in the mirror and straighten our coat, fix our tie, you know, work on our comb over. Before we do that, let's be careful to understand we're those people that Jesus didn't entrust himself to. We're those people. It's so easy to read the Bible and go, Israel, you knuckleheads, get it together. How are you missing this? Like he just told you to do one thing in the garden and you blew it. And then he gave you this law and said, I'm going to make you a people. And like you're going to be awesome and do great things and point people to me. And you just kept running away. Like how are you missing this? But listen, you and I would have done the very same thing. Do you know how I know? Because we do it today. We do it today. We may not run off and and go to a temple in Ephesus and participate in pagan prostitution practices. We just have different ways of sinning, calling it something it's not, dressing it up. But listen, if you put lipstick on a pig, it's still what? It's still a pig. It might be a pretty pig, okay? But it's still a pig. And what happens to pigs? They get slaughtered for bacon, okay? I'm not going to carry that metaphor any further. Verse 4, God sees through their charade. And he says, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and the early dew that does what? Vanishes. Goes away. He says, this is why I've used the prophets to cut you down. I'm bringing people to proclaim messages to you. And they're telling you that you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. Worse than that. You're running away and violating my covenant. What are you doing? He says, my judgment strikes like lightning. I desire faithful love and the knowledge of God, not your sacrifices. What did Jesus say to the hard-hearted Pharisees in Matthew 9 and Matthew 12? Listen to this. He said, go and learn what this means. Now, why does that matter? Because they thought they knew everything. They, they thought there was nothing that they needed to learn. So here is this carpenter turned rabbi with no degrees, plaques, certifications hanging on his wall. And he says, go and learn what this means. Everything in them burred up at the fact that this guy would say, from, from Nazareth would say, you need to go and learn something. They're angry. They're proud. And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Where is he quoting from? Hosea 6 and verse 6. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't want your perfunctory religious routine. I want your heart. I want your heart. He says the sacrifices are great. Those were commanded. Interestingly, why were they given in the law? Because God knew we were going to transgress the law. So there was a way provided to take care of our transgression. So what was wrong with Old Testament Israel and New Testament Pharisees? Nobody would acknowledge their sin. Old Testament Israel was like, sin? I don't know what you're talking about, sin. We're not doing anything like that. They wouldn't even acknowledge it, much less repent. And then you got the New Testament Pharisees, basically one and the same. They're going through the proper, outward religious rites, but they're never repenting. Please listen to what I'm about to say next. This is absolutely fantastic. Warren Wiersbe says the people wanted healing, but they didn't want cleansing from their sin. Let me say it again. The people wanted healing, but they didn't want to be cleansed from their sin. Wiersbe says they wanted happiness, but they didn't want holiness. They wanted a change in their circumstances. Heal us, fix us. But they didn't want a change in their thinking and in their living. In Matthew 4, at the very start of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus shows up on the scene, His very first demand of His listeners was what? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is here. God's kingdom has come to earth. Turn back. He says, repent. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. And I think there was a tongue-in-cheek reference there, like those who think they're righteous, because nobody's righteous. I didn't come to call the righteous. He said, I came to call sinners to what? Repentance. Now, go to the end of the New Testament. I just walked you through a couple of gospel references. Go to the end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 2. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus again says this. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. And repent. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. What did God say to Israel? Your love's like the morning dew, it's here and then it's gone, and you're just all over the place. He says, You have abandoned your first love. Remember how far you have fallen. And repent and do the works you did at first. So the people in Hosea's day had all the right words and they were saying them in the right way religiously. I'm totally being facetious because I don't think you can do that. Ethan just touched on that actually this morning. They had all the right words, all the right little little religious dance they were doing. But we have to ask this all-important question. What does it mean to truly repent? What does that mean? Because you cannot receive the gospel of the kingdom if you do not do this thing correctly. You can't. If you're not willing to repent, you will be separated from eternal God in hell. That's why Jesus showed up saying, repent, repent, repent. What did Peter and Paul say? Repent. Turn back. Pastor John Piper is tremendously clarifying here. Listen to what he says about repentance. Repentance is a call for radical inward change toward God and toward man. It's not just a mere sorrow for sin or mere improvement of behavior, right? With our kids, what do we see? Are they sorry that they did wrong? Are they sorry that they got caught, right? We get older and just get better at hiding our sorrow, don't we? (laughs) Honestly, most of the time we're sorry that we got caught. We're no better than the people we're telling. Hey, hey, get it together here, right? We need to get it together here. We can't get it together on our own. Radical change in how you think about God, self, and man is repentance. Listen to Luke 3.8. It describes, Piper says, the relationship between repentance and new behavior. Listen carefully. Luke 3.8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So bearing fruit and repentance are not the same thing. Bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Then it gives examples of the fruit. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, share or go and do likewise. What this means is this repenting is what happens inside of you that leads to a change of behavior outside of you. Does that make sense? Repentance is not the new deeds, Piper says. And he's right. Repentance is not just the outward conformity, I'm doing the right thing now because I got tired of whatever. It's the inward change that happens. It's a to- watch me, totally, completely different orientation. Toward God and toward man. I'm tired of where I've been. I'm tired of the sin I'm living in. And the Holy Spirit comes in and rocks my world and turns me around and says, come back home. And it's this inward change that leads to an outward uh, behavior, outward deeds. Same thing God said to Israel. That's why when you read Paul's epistles, look at them carefully. They always start with doctrine and they always end with duty. They always start with belief and then they end with behavior. If you get it the other way around and you try to behave before you believe, you know what that's called? Religion. It's not the gospel. It's got to be this way. It's got to be belief. That so permeates your thinking that it leads to a change in your living. It's got to be doctrine. You say, I don't want doctrine that's dry and dirty and dusty. It's got to be doctrine that seeps its way down from here into here and out into here. Head, heart, hands. And they live it out. It's got to be that way. It's an inward change that bears the fruit of new deeds. So Jesus is demanding, listen, he's demanding that we experience this inward change. Well, then you ask this question, how do we do that? Like, you're, you're, you're telling me to experience this inward change. How do I do it? Do we do it by rule keeping? No. We're only able to repent when the Holy Spirit, watch me, takes the blinders off your eyes and shows you the condition you are in apart from a holy God. Satan is blinding the minds and the eyes of the unbelievers in this world. All different kinds of ways. Your temptation may may be different from mine. But he wants to keep the blinders over you. Maybe you've sat in church for 60 years and he's pulled the blinders over your eyes of religion and you think, well, I do this, 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 and this and that makes me acceptable to God and he's got the blinders over your eyes and you need to have those ripped off by the Holy Spirit to see that you've wandered away from God just like Israel. Romans chapter 3. That you're dead in your trespasses and sins following Satan and that you begin your life because of original sin as an enemy of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Our condition before Christ is no different than Israel in Hosea's day. We're just a lot better at sinning in clean, plastic, perfect, shiny, veneer kind of ways. Remember repentance is not the new deeds it's the inward change. So let me close with a couple of thoughts from a summary by Skip Heidsick that I found very helpful on the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, he says, is the story of a heartfelt message from a heart-sick prophet about a heartbroken God. Write that down, listen. Story of Hosea is a heartfelt message from a heart-sick prophet about a heartbroken God. Hosea keeps going after Gomer and bringing her back and she's running away into the arms of other lovers and Hosea faithfully pursues his wife. What does God do for his people? He just keeps coming after us, coming after us, and coming after us. And then at the end of the book of Hosea, don't tune out here, listen to this. At the end of the book of Hosea, the metaphor of marriage shifts. It's not about marriage anymore, it shifts to this father-child thing. Okay, watch this. He says God's heart was to forgive and restore His people, His children. To show them how far they had moved away from Him. And welcome them back into His open arms. What parable does that sound like in the New Testament? Prodigal son. You have a father who is waiting for a son who has wandered far away into sin in a far country and done everything that would humiliate his father and offend the holy God. And he's waiting, come back home, come back home, come back home. The difference is Israel refused to come back home. What did the prodigal son do? Came to his senses, got up, went back home. You can't be converted if you don't come back home. You can't. The gospel calls us to repent, to experience this inward change through the Spirit that leads to a new purpose, a new direction, new deeds, new behavior, new affinities and affections. But it has to start in here. So perhaps God's calling you today to repent of your sin for the very first time in your life. Doesn't matter how old you are. Maybe God's calling you. To do a U-turn and come back home. He's waiting with open, welcome arms. Saying, come back home. Israel refused. They faced God's discipline. The prodigal son got up, came back home. And the father celebrated. So maybe you need to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior today. Maybe you sit in this place and you're guilty like Israel you're guilty of spiritual infidelity, running away to other things, being unfaithful to God. You say, how have I done that? We do that in all kinds of ways. might be entertainment. might be loving watching our favorite programs, our favorite movies, keeping up with our favorite personalities on Facebook or Twitter. Entertainment can become a God today, folks. Entertainment can become a pseudo-religion that we find our satisfaction and our joy might be hobbies, your hobbies, your kids' hobbies. And you spend your time and your resources and you think about them and you do everything for this hobby. Whatever it is, it may look like a good hobby. may not even be a bad hobby. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's a family. Family can become an idol. And you look to those things for satisfaction and purpose and identity. Maybe like Israel, you failed to express your gratitude. And you've been running over here thanking a person, a job, whatever it is, for how God has provided for you in your life. Maybe you've not expressed that gratitude. Or maybe, like much of my story growing up, you've been going through the motions. You've been saying all the right things at the right time in front of the right people. And maybe you're really good at what Dave Busby used to call, he used to say, the religious dance. I don't know if anybody remembers Dave Busby. Maybe you're good at the religious dance. You know every step in the religious dance. But your heart is miles away from God. However God is calling you this morning to respond, it doesn't have to be in this next five minutes at the end of service. But don't put him off. Maybe you need to get away today, tomorrow, this week, somehow, sometime, and sit down with God and say, God, am I running away from you in some way that maybe I don't even see? I mean, we have blind spots, don't we? You have blind spots? I have blind spots. Maybe we're running away from God and he's calling us home and we just can't hear his voice because we're turning up the sound on something else so loud. However God is calling you to respond. Listen, repentance is not a one-time walk the aisle when you're sick kind of thing. Repentance is keeping short accounts with God. It's recognizing that we are continually running away from Him. And then we confess our sin. Not to be resaved, saved but to enjoy that restored fellowship. Your sin doesn't dissolve that relationship if you're truly in Christ. But it distorts that fellowship. He calls you to repent. Continually, consistently. To respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. And without it, we we really have no purpose in gathering in this place. Because our songs would have no meaning. Our ministry here would have no purpose. Without your word, with you speaking to us and telling us who you are, who we are, in light of that, and how we're to respond, without that, God, we we would be hopeless. But you've left us everything that we need to know in this life, in this book. Not just to study it and hoard up our knowledge and sit on it, but to apply it and to live it out. And so I pray today... In keeping with your desire for us to behave differently because we believe differently. I pray that we would repent of the sin that you're calling us to repent of. Maybe it's something that's secret. We keep it tucked away. We don't want anybody to know about it. Maybe we're on the edge. We're on the danger zone. The, the, the point of falling over the cliff to our utter ruin. And your Holy Spirit is calling to us much like Hosea calling to Israel. Israel. Lord, let us not repent with superficial, surface-level words, religious dances. Lord, let us repent with a godly kind of sorrow that breaks our hearts because we have offended you, quenched your spirit, run from you, been ungrateful for the goodness and the provision you've placed in our lives. Father, I pray this holy moment, this holy hour of setting aside the things of this world, the secular stuff that draws us away, I pray, God, that this holy quiet, this holy hush would be the place that you call to us in that still small voice speak to us. I think about Titus 2 and how grace is the thing not the law, but grace is the thing that teaches us how to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. To lead lives that are holy and upright in this present age as we wait for the appearing of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us realize we're not waiting on Monday, we're waiting on Jesus. Lord, hasten that day. Hurry it along. But in the meantime, let us Repent. And bear fruit in keeping the repentance. And let us be about your mission and not be distracted with other things. Holy Spirit, please, please, please prick our hearts. Cause us to respond in the way you would have us to today and tomorrow and Tuesday and next Saturday. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and stand at this time and sing our closing song of invitation and response. If there's a decision that you need to make today, please do that. Please respond as the Holy Spirit is leading you to. If you just want to come here and pray, just come here and and pray before the Lord. You can do that as well. Let's stand, let's sing, let's respond.